sound design. This only works, though, if we are running a truly redundant network and we are using separate hardware switches for the secondary network. That power supply goes down. That's great that we ran all of these extra cables. But if that one switch dies, we lose both primary and secondary. Sound Design Live. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the Field Sales Engineering Manager at Yamaha, Preston Gray. Preston, welcome to Sound Design Live. Thanks, Nathan. Glad to be here. Um, So Preston, I definitely want to talk to you about Yamaha consoles, and maybe we'll get into talking about some Dante and some Nexo speakers. But first... um, you have done a lot of work on systems and uh, education and touring yourself. So when it comes to setting up a system, what's one of the first pieces of music you would want to listen to after you kind of get everything working? For me, there's a track that I found recently, uh, Rock With You. So it's a, it's a cover track, but it's by uh, Trinity Oyster House. So we might listen to a Rage Against the Machine track. To really see what the subs are doing. Um, and we might listen for that kick drum tone that we we know and love from Rage Against the Machine. Or we might listen to, you know, that wall of guitars um, on ACDC to listen to mid-range. Um, so Preston... How did you get your first job in audio? Like, what was your first paying gig? I got started in the church world and had an opportunity uh, volunteering at the local church I went to in uh, in middle school and high school. That turned into a really high-paying job for a high school student. So I was on staff um, at a church while going to school. And that was, you know, it it was a great opportunity for me to really learn in a safe environment, working with uh, PA systems for the church, working with consoles and mixing um, youth services, really provided a safe space to make some mistakes um, that are at the same level of pressure as, you know, your corporate events and your uh, large format uh, uh, touring accounts and whatnot. Uh, so there are a lot of things you've done since then, um, and I know we could go down a lot of stories about the the path that your career has taken, um, but I wondered if we could instead just zoom in on one of okay. them, and I wonder if you could maybe tell us about one time that you think was kind of a, a decisive turn where you made some kind of decision that helped you get more of the work that you really love. And so I was wondering if you could sort of take us there and and tell us what happened. I think as far as an opportunity or a decision that I made, or I, I guess in some ways it's also just being at the right place in the right time. But some of the decisions I've made that I feel like have presented more opportunities for me is while we're all in this industry because we love music, we love technology. Um, I think there's a relational part of what we do um, that's incredibly important. And that's something that I've cared about since since diving into this industry. Being able to find a mentor and build a relationship with someone that has been in the industry much longer than you, has done things wrong and is willing to share them with you. 
um, is really probably the most influential decision that I made and was lucky enough to have someone that wanted to invest time um, and energy in me. So that really happened for me while I was in college. I took a job with with a church camp touring and uh, hanging PA for them. We toured all over the uh, all the country. A church camp tour? Yes. Wow, I've never heard of this. So tell me about this, like youth services, this kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, so... And it's a music show? It's like a concert? Yeah, so basically okay. um, it's, a, it's a church camp, and they basically, the organization does camps at all these uh, various different college universities. Um, so we carried full uh, full production, a small EVXLD rig, Yamaha consoles. So I took that job as, you know, a summer internship, so to speak, my first year in college. And I got connected with uh, with John Mills, who's currently at uh, EAW. Um, so John and I really built a relationship in that in that space. He was responsible uh, for sending the gear out with the production company and also training us on how to uh how to properly deploy all of these systems. So outside of the technical uh, know-how that we communicated and, and John shared with me, uh, we built a, uh, a long-standing relationship and friendship to this day. So we not only talk about audio stuff and, you know, how to make your mix sound great or how to, you know, tune a PA. We talk about what it's like to travel and have a family at home. And we've really built relationships that go to a deeper level. Um, being on the lookout for a mentor that can help you advance in your career, regardless of what stage you're at in your career, I think is probably the the, the biggest influencing factor for how I've progressed through the industry, whether that's different tours or gigs or my current role with the manufacturer, I think just being open for feedback and criticism and finding that mentor that that's going to help provide that feedback to you is really important. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to Yamaha consoles? So either maybe they've just, they're just getting started or maybe they're coming over from some other consoles um, and they're kind of either getting mixed up with, with the layout or maybe using it in a, a way that you feel like is not constructive. Yeah, two things come to mind. The first is gain structure. Um, and I know everybody harps on that. And we live in this uh, digital world where we seem to have an infinite amount of, of gain. You know, a bunch of these consoles before you hit clip, you've just got so much, so much headroom. But at the end of the day, uh, your gain structure really is the first part of that mix coming together. I guess one thing I see, uh, again, not just in Yamaha desks, but just across the board, when you dive into soundcheck, especially in environments, you know, like a church setting where your file may already be set up for you, you still need to go check that gain structure. Your vocalist may, uh, may be having a little bit of an off day and um, she's not singing at full capacity. We need to make sure that head amps adjusted. Um, same thing with with your bass player. Your bass player may have gotten a new pedal or may have changed uh, changed guitars. So we need to constantly be updating that gain structure in order for everything to fit and sit correctly in the mix. That's really the first step. So again, not unique to Yamaha, um, but that's uh, that's something that I I see ignored quite a bit because we've got all these different volume knobs or gain knobs within plugins where we could offset that, but that really needs to be done at the preamp. Well, Preston, can can we pause yeah. for a second? Is there anything specific we can pull out of uh, gain structure? I. It would be great if there's something you could think of that like you often see people doing wrong because you mentioned like head amp settings. So are people setting their head amps 
too high or too low? And maybe you could just give me some tips around head amp settings and like when I'm looking at um, the meter on the console, what should I be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's there's probably two different paths of um, or philosophies on setting your head amp. One is you bring your fader. I only want to know the right one. <laughs> right. You want to know the right one. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Audio. Um, we have to be careful saying what right and wrong is. It's gets uh, it's so a bit di- like so politics. Diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like politics. Yeah. So, I mean, there's one idea that you set your your gain based on, you know, the fader being at unity and where you want that level to land. For me, that's not the approach I take. Um, I don't bring my fader up to Unity and then set the uh, set the gain based on that. So I have the most articulation of travel in that fader. For me, I want to make sure I'm hitting the preamp hard enough to get the characteristics out of that preamp. But at the same time, I don't want to overdrive that. So I want to ride the line right there and um, and get as close to uh, to where that preamp is maximized, but without overdriving it. And I guess the only exception there is if I'm using old analog Midas preamps, and then we're absolutely gonna overdrive those for all of the drum inputs, because you get this nice harmonic distortion. It sounds really nice and fat on a snare drum if we're gonna use a preamp like that. But for the Yamaha Yamaha desks in particular, you're gonna wanna hit those um, and get those up to that amber light. And that's my experience. If we need to back that down a little bit, um, you have attenuation in your EQ section so that you have better articulation with your fader travel. So I guess that's one concern with uh, with preamps. If you if you hit them pretty hard and you find your faders are all down really low to get the volume you want, you can always find a different place to attenuate that preamp that's not at the fader. Um, so that's that's kind of how I solve that challenge. But for me, really getting the meat and warmth out of the preamp is is the most important. And was there something else you wanted to say about um uh, console use? Yeah, yeah. So the other big one for me as a as a system engineer that may not even be on the console, I may just be tuning the PA, but I see I see this mistake happening quite a bit these days is paying attention to your timing within your desk. So engineers right now are all using plugins for the most part. And I personally love the idea of being able to take your secret sauce, you know, vocal chain with you from console to console, whether it's the universal audio plugin kits or the waves racks. I love this concept and idea that allows us to add some personal flavor to our mixes. But whenever we're inserting those plugin chains, each individual plugin has a different amount of latency. And whether we route that to a bus, a group, an aux, or an individual input, we have to be careful in how how all of those buses and inputs are summing in respects to latency. So we can quickly create some comb filtering and phasing inadvertently if we don't pay attention to uh, to the audio paths and the time that it takes to go in and out of those wave servers and whatnot. Uh, cool. So you're talking about specifically sending uh, signal out from the console to something else like a wave server, not not anything, not any routing I'm doing in the console. So I can't create those problems if I'm only doing routing inside the console. I guess I see it more often whenever we're using an outboard uh, piece of gear like a waves rack or even analog outboard gear for inserts. Um, that's where I think the, the problem comes up most often. There are ways to create latency mismatches uh, within any desk. So with the Ravage desks, we have a really powerful uh, latency compensation engine. So that's going to help prevent that from happening. 
but you have to make sure that you go in and enable the uh, the right the right settings for that to work for your application. Obviously, a monitor engineer is going to want to prioritize the lowest latency, whereas a front house engineer wants to prioritize everything coming out of the console 100% in time. So those are some settings you want to you want to navigate. But I think a lot of people get in trouble with this uh, with parallel compression. We're sending. Sure, that's what I was going to ask about. And this is a really interesting feature that that now is in Rivage. So if I have a CL or QL console and I send two sources to the same bus and then one of those buses goes to my effects rack and then comes back, then that could create Absolutely. a synchronization error. But in Rivage, you're saying that I could enable a plug-in latency correction and that would fix it. That's that. correct. That's correct. What okay. we get into trouble most is there's not really a latency correction for any time we leave the desk because the desk doesn't know the latency that's happening inside of another DSP that's not connected, right. you know, in, in terms of control to that console. So that's something you have to manage and calculate on your own and insert that that delay on the channel strip or output strip. Um, so I want to talk about Dante for a second, and I don't know if this will go anywhere because I know it's hard to talk about specific things when you can't see, I don't give you all the details and you can't see the entire of course. Um, uh, system that I was working on. But I'm going to give it a shot anyway and we'll see if it goes somewhere. So... When it comes to Dante Networks, I have had some small problems almost every time I, I, I set one up. And I, I think that's mostly due to the fact that as a freelancer, I'm working with different companies all the time. So I am not ever using the same system back to back to back. Otherwise, I think I would probably just do it right every time. Right. So um, I've noticed that many of these problems with Dante are often solved by I'm, I'm looking for the problem, I'm looking for the problem, and then I just say, you know what, let me try power cycling everything. And then I do, and then everything works after that. So I also heard recently that I should not connect my secondary Dante line until everything is working on the primary line. So I first wanted to ask you, like, is that correct? And is maybe that one of the problems with my how I've been doing my setup and startup. So maybe this could just be a jumping off point for, for you to talk a little bit about proper um, network setup uh, and boot up procedures. Um, but also, you know, tell me if I'm doing it wrong. I guess I've had I've had a decent amount ex of experience deploying Dante networks that are beyond just um, you know, connecting a console and a couple Rio racks and maybe maybe your virtual playback machine. So we get into these larger Dante networks and with uh, with the Nexo amplifiers, we have Dante cards for all of those. So we you know, there's deployments uh, where we might have 30, 40 amplifiers on a Dante network all in redundant mode. So we have to manage those. Luckily, I've had the uh, opportunity to, to do things incorrectly and find some challenges there. So I think you hit on two two really good points. I guess let's talk about the secondary network first. And I would completely agree with the advice of let's get the primary network rocking first and then plug in the secondary. But let's let's explore why that is and not just take that take that advice at face value. So with Dante devices, most most devices that manufacturers offer, um, Yamaha's included in this have have a Dante chipset and we can uh, we can set that device up for either a switched mode operation meaning your primary and secondary port are doing the same thing 
um, that console is just acting as a little two port uh, network switch. Or we can set up that device as a redundant uh, in redundant mode. So then we truly have a primary and secondary network that are separate. So when we have the, the device set up in redundant mode, one of the biggest uh, challenges or the biggest pitfalls that's going to really mess up your Dante network is connecting the primary and secondary. So uh, I'm sure you've seen the movie Ghostbusters. Don't ever cross the streams. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Cross the streams. You're going to endanger us. You're going to endanger our client. That is, that is <laughs> rule number one when working with redundant systems. That being said, uh, we see the streams get crossed when there's one or more devices on the network that have not been moved from switch mode to redundant. Mm -hmm. So chances are the primary is going to get merged with the secondary whenever we plug in that device. So step one is to make sure that everything's on the same mode. That's correct. So the network can be up and stable if we leave everything just plugged into the primary and we can mix and match devices that may have been set in redundant or uh, may have been forgotten and left in switch mode. Those are still going to interact correctly together as long as we don't have that secondary network plugged in. So at that point, we can really pull up, uh, we can pull up Dante control and go through that list, make sure everything's showing in redundant mode. If something is not in redundant mode, you'll have to change it to switched and chances are it will need either a soft reboot or a complete power cycle um, in order to get that, uh, that change to take place. So okay. that really leads to the power cycle question. If settings were changed in Dante controller, you know, it's uh, either clock settings or whether we're setting up a device in primary, uh, primary and secondary mode uh, or switch mode, we do have to have a power cycle for that to, um, effect to take place on the Audinate chipset. Um, so that is part, could be part of the reason why a power cycle helps you there. I guess yeah, maybe I had one piece on the system that wasn't set correctly and then I switched it, but then didn't, I didn't do a power cycle and then everything gets confused. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that that change typically won't take place until it's power cycled. The other thing we can do with leaving devices connected to the primary network is we can check all of our network settings as well at that point in time. And we can really dive in, make sure we have all the devices and there, I guess there are three common network settings that we would see on Dante enabled devices. And this is all related to how the device takes its IP address. One is um, in the default for, for Audinate devices is the device is going to take a link local address. It doesn't have a DHCP server that's telling it, hey, Mr. Console, I want you to take this address. So it's going to self-assign a link local address. This is normally fine because our audio networks don't have a, we just don't have a very large number of devices on a network, all things considered. So our likelihood of having the same IP address show up on two devices is so low. So that's one way. Um, that's going to show up as a 169.254 address. So we want to make sure everything's in that same range. The other way is we might set static IP addresses. And if we set static IP addresses, again, we want to make sure those are all in the same subnet range that we've set up. Oh, on my computer. understanding was that Dante, that that was a kind of a no-no with the Dante network. I thought everything had to be DHCP and you should not use static IP addresses. You know, I think, I think as a best practice, most, uh, I guess, entry as we're getting into the Dante networks, 
Audinate probably says just let let us do the work for you with the DHCP server. If you're on a rig consistently, it's a network you're setting up for an installation that's going to be left alone. I typically like to set static IP addresses so I know um, okay. when I'm looking at just IP ranges, I might have um, a 192.168.1 address for all of my house left amplifiers and 192.168.2 address for all of my house right amplifiers and maybe a dot three address for all of my DSPs. So I, okay. that gives me a way to quickly know what devices are, even if uh, even if I don't have the device name. So that helps me manage the network. But again, if you're not setting up a network to be used multiple times, I don't know that it's worth the time and energy to go down that path. Okay. The DHCP server is the last one, and I think really plays into your reboot and power cycle workflow. If we have devices that are uh, looking for that DHCP server and that DHCP server is the last thing to get powered on, it may have already defaulted to a link local network address while it was looking and waiting for that DHCP server to come online. So when we're thinking about power cycling and the order of boot up, that DH, whatever device you're using as a DHCP server, whether it's a wireless router or um, some sort of network switch like a Cisco SG300, that really needs to come on first and fully boot up before we start turning on Dante devices. Interesting. Okay. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to have some devices show up with 169.254 link local addresses and other devices show up with whatever uh, addresses that DHCP server is pushing out, but likely they're not going to be compatible. Okay. Yeah, I think that I think that clears up a lot of the mystery for me as I think I was probably just sort of turning things on in any order. So the switches need to come on first for sure. And I was also trying to figure out like systematically, how am I going to just connect the primary networks first? So I guess I'll run everything out, connect all the primary networks, make sure that's working, and then go back and just track down the secondary ports and plug in everything after that. And, and if I know if something goes wrong after that, I know it's because I have something plugged in wrong with the secondary networks. Yeah, so that's a possibility for me. Um, I guess we should get into a little bit of uh, philosophy on redundant networks. So my workflow is just connect everything from the startup. Um, whenever you're loading in, plug everything in, primary and secondary, but just don't power on your secondary switches. This only works, though, if we are running a truly redundant network and we are using separate hardware switches for the secondary network. Oh, right. Because I usually it's usually the same switch, just different, different partitions VLANs. on the different VLANs yeah. on the ports. Right. Yeah. OK, so I guess yep. this gets into I, I have a bit of a soapbox on the uh, on, on using network switches and VLANs uh, for primary no, and go secondary. For it. I think we need to hear it. Yeah. So I guess coming from <laughs> coming from the touring world, uh, it was redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. We never wanted something to go down. So we had primary, secondary and analog backup. And chances are we were also sending a full front house mix from the monitor desk to the processor out at front house so that let's say the front house desk goes down for some reason, somebody throws a beer on it. We have something to pump through the PA at that point. So I guess for me, we when we're talking about redundancy, we want to look for single point failures. And if we have a network switch and it's handling both the primary and secondary networks, it chances are it has one power supply, it's one piece of hardware, that power supply goes down. That's great that we ran all of these extra cables, but if that one switch dies, we lose both primary and secondary. 
on the other hand, if we truly separate those primary and secondary networks, you can have a switch go down and we still have audio passing through the secondary network or the primary network, depending on which device um, may actually fail for whatever reason. That also really helps with troubleshooting and eliminates a complicated step of programming switches with VLANs. Yamaha does make switches to make those VLANs easier, and they're already set up with uh, the proper QoS settings for Dante and green Ethernet disabled so that those ports aren't going to go to sleep on you. But even with those switches, I still, my personal workflow and recommendation is if we're going to deploy a redundant network, primary stays on one set of switches, secondary stays on a completely separate set of switches. And then that allows you to go ahead and plug everything in and just power down or don't power up your secondary switches until primary is ready to rock and roll. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Preston. I think that clears a lot of things up. So Preston, a lot of great things have happened in your career, um, but we don't want people to think that you are some kind of superhero. So tell us about maybe the biggest or most painful mistake you've made on the job and what happened afterwards. Yeah. So I'm, I'm laughing because we were just talking about redundancy and never letting audio go down for a show. And um, sure enough, that's of course what happened. So I was out as a system uh, system engineer and crew chief on a tour and our opening act was was on stage was also responsible for the opening acts consoles and um, and their stage package and sure enough uh, the console failed I should note that it was not a Yamaha console and there's a reason that I work for Yamaha right now but you know in our careers and as we work through things we're gonna have equipment fail at most likely the in most inopportune time. So how we respond to that and how we prepare for that is really what's important. Unfortunately, because this was the opening act and not the headliner, we did not have that backup monitor mix coming from monitor world to front house. We had that established for the headliner. We did not have that established with the opening act. Wait, so where were you? When was this? Uh, and what what were you doing on this show? Yeah, so I guess I was I was the system tech. I was not mixing, but uh, we did have we were we were playing an arena show. I honestly can't remember what city. All of them start blending together. Um, <laughs> but it was it was a country tour in the middle of winter. I do remember that. So it was a bit odd. We had okay. palm trees on on stage and it was February and snowing outside. <laughs> But yeah, so the opening act was was on stage there and I'm I'm out at front house sitting next to the uh, to the front house engineer, making sure the PA is is uh, is functioning the way it should be. And his console froze up. We were still passing audio through the DSP of the console. And I guess to go into more details there, I was texting um, the manufacturer tech support guys. And they said, oh, this is really bad. Just go ahead. <laughs> oh, this, that's not what yeah. you want to hear from tech support. That's definitely not what you want to hear from tech support. <laughs> You're screwed. I was like, okay, so we've got like eight songs left in the set. What are we going to do? So the uh, the console manufacturer said, oh, well, you just need to go press this one reset button that's recessed within the desk. And that'll reset, you know, X, Y, and Z scan process or whatever. I said, uh, okay. Can you guarantee me that audio will still pass if we do this? (laughs) Yes. Audio is going to still pass. Are you sure audio is going to pass? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to do it. And so I walked over to the console. Yeah. Famous last words. 
Um, it pulled out, you know, a little screwdriver to, to push in the reset button. And right before I did it, I asked one more time, you promised me audio is going to keep passing if I reset this thing. Oh yeah, of course it is. As soon as I pressed the button, every bit of audio in the arena went down. I was like, Oh no. Oh no. Um, so I guess that's terrifying. Yeah. And, and the challenge there is, like I said, we didn't have that um, redundant backup feed coming from monitor world to the front house processor to be able to push some sort of audio through, through the PA system. So we all just kind of had to sit there and wait until the front house console booted back up. Um, um, and then we finished the set and, uh, yeah, it, this stuff happens. Gear is going to fail in the middle of a show. Something out of your control is going to happen. And really as audio engineers, it's, it's up to us on how do we prepare for that? Have you run drills uh, on your tour? Any possible scenario? Okay, co front house console goes down. What's my next step? And is that muscle memory? So we have to prepare for that. And then we have to practice it. So we have to make sure how quickly can we get into that DSP processor or the console switcher and make that change? What's the protocol and letting the monitor engineer know that we're taking his mix that he probably hasn't listened to in since tour rehearsal? How, what's the process there to make sure everybody's in the loop? And then finally, just keeping a cool head. The worst thing that could possibly happen when you have a catastrophic failure like a console going down is to get completely flustered uh, and you're not going to think straight. You're not going to be able to communicate with your crew and with your tour manager and production manager on how to solve that problem quickly. So just keeping a cool head and staying patient, but working as efficiently as possible is those were all things I learned in the process of of this going wrong. So I'm just curious what happened in the end. So, so audio went out after you press that button and then it was just silence and that was the end of the show and everyone went home sad. What happened? No. So we, uh, the console just had to reboot and we ended up finishing the, uh, I think we cut to the last song or something or last, last two or three songs, but you know, everybody sits there in silence for the, you know, 60 seconds minute and a half that it takes for that console to reboot. And then we're, you know, we're back up and running. So luckily we have not seen those type of failures in catastrophic ways with many of our Yamaha consoles. And like I said before, there's a reason I work for Yamaha these days. And those scenarios like that do put a, a bunch of extra stress on you as a, as an engineer and as a system tech. So our gear choices are really important and we want to work with you know, when we get to specify gear as engineers, which I know is not always the case, you want to really look at gears that have a, a really high track record and reliability. Yeah. So you mentioned console failures, and I know this is purely anecdotal because I recognize that I haven't used all of the consoles in the world or all the speakers in the world. Uh, in fact, the, the opposite is true. For some reason, a lot of my experience has just been on Yama Yamaha consoles just because... I get a I didn't choose that. I just get a job somewhere, and that's what they happen to have, and and that happened a lot for some reason. And so it wasn't until I started using other people's consoles later on that I saw like, oh, sometimes other consoles fail, and I just ha or or um, act more like you expect a desktop computer to act, where <laughs> <Right>. like they <laughs> they get locked up or frozen or something, and it, it's just interesting for me that from 
seems like from the very beginning, Yamaha has pursued having something that's super stable. One of our one of our corporate customers that's been buying uh, Yamaha desks decided, you know, we're going to look at the spreadsheet. We're going to crunch some numbers. We could buy, you know, five or six of this other manufacturer's console for the price that we would pay for, you know, your CL desk or whatever it is. We don't necessarily need all the inputs of the CL. We're, we're fine with this uh, less expensive desk. So I basically what happened is we said, that's that's fine. Um, we we are not going to compete on price point there. But, you know, just keep in mind the reputation and how successful you guys have been with our desks in the past. So that went on a few few months went by and come to find out uh, we get a panicked phone call a few months later. Oh, my gosh. I've got to have one of your desks like tomorrow. So what happened? What happened? What happened? We basically the corporate customer uh, was in the middle of a all staff meeting at this large corporation. They were not only presenting to an in-house live audience of several hundred employees, but they were streaming to all of their uh, remote employees as well. And if you start calculating um, how long that they were without that meeting and that meeting going down, even though they had a backup spare, one of these uh, less expensive consoles ready to go, it still took them about 15 minutes to unplug the one that died, plug in the spare one that was in a box. And if you start looking at, you know, the hourly rate of several hundred employees versus the cost of a console. <laughs> um, yeah. It doesn't make sense. So the, co- no, I want to look at it. How much was it? <laughs> I don't know. It'd be fun to calculate. Yeah. Thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 15 minutes for, you know, some executives that are getting paid, you know, six, well into six figures and whatnot, plus all of the other employees, what that number is just infinitely larger than the price difference of going from a less expensive console that may not have the reputation re- reliability to a console that might still be a you know significantly more expensive on paper but has that reputation and reliability so it's important to think through what situations you might be in and really where does where, where does the ROI make sense um, in our in our decisions as to what what type of equipment we use Preston, I have a couple of questions here from Facebook that we'll see if you have some responses for. Yeah. Um, so Dave Gammon asks, how does he see rapid prototyping and the ability of printing parts effectively change the possible configurations in pro audio for the better? Reference their new printed, high frequency horn, etc. Do you know what he's talking about? I think so, or at least we're going to go down. We're going to go down a path that I that I think will connect either way. So Nexo's releasing our new P series uh, point source boxes. If you guys have followed uh, Nexo's products um, in the past couple years, Nexo's really focused on creating new and quick ways to change the directivity of cabinets that don't require you breaking out a drill and taking the grill off and unbolting the horn and rotating it and screwing it back in. So our ID24 range of uh, small dipole point sources, there's a knob on the back to rotate that horn. So we can't can't necessarily change whether it's a 90 by 40 to a 120 by 60, but depending on how you're deploying that, uh, that loudspeaker, whether it's pole mounted vertically or laying on its side as a front fill, an engineer can just quickly rotate the horn without having to get a full t- uh, toolkit out. So fast forward a couple uh, couple years, we're working on our new coaxial point source boxes. And 
we have come up with this idea of, well, what if not only can we rotate the horn without tools, but what if we can change the dispersion pattern as well without tools? Um, so that's where we've we've u- utilized our patent for changing the exit part of the horn using magnetic parts. So the, all of our prototypes on this are 3D printed. The uh, the horns that you would you would purchase from Nexo now are injected molded. Um, so we did use 3D printing and rapid prototyping to create the initial prototype models of those. Um, but mm-hmm. now we have, let's take our P12, the 12 inch coaxial, for example, the box ships as a 60 by 60 horn. And then you can go ahead and drop in an accessory um, that's magnetic on top of that 60 by 60 horn to convert it to 90 by 40. Or we've got a second one that allows you to convert that 60 by 60 horn to an asymmetrical horn. So all of those are rotatable. You just pull the magnetic piece out and then rotate it 90 degrees and drop it back in. So we have that feature available on the P12, the P10 and the P8. So I guess to um, to our question on Facebook, while those are not necessarily 3D printed parts as the final piece going to uh, going to the user, we do use 3D printing to uh, to develop those pieces. Preston, what's in your work bag? Like, what do you take with you to to gigs and shows? I know there's probably a lot of things, but could you pick out what you think are maybe some of the more unique or interesting pieces? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in my work bag today looks completely different than my work bag did when I was touring and, and doing uh, doing events. Currently, my work bag today, you know, has Plantronics noise canceling headphones for the plane. Oh, cool. Never thought I would actually buy a pair of, you know, Plantronics or Bose headphones as a bit of an audio snob. But the noise canceling thing is super convenient for flying around the country. And then, you know, currently I just carry a laptop and I might carry a disto with me um, right now, but in a role. What disto? What disto? Yeah, absolutely. I carry a Lycia D810 for most okay. for most remodeling. But yeah, my gig bag these days in a role where I'm really helping other people with their solutions as a technical sales and field sales manager, I don't necessarily have to have all of the tuning equipment with me all the time. I might just be going to a meeting to review a drawing set um, or talk through a Dante network with somebody that hasn't been deployed yet. So my tool bag today is a whole lot uh, is a whole lot smaller than it has been in the past. I don't know if you can even remember, but would it be interesting to sort of go back in time and look at when you were touring more? Was it was there? Any piece in your bag that you felt like was super critical or that you noticed that other people didn't have? Yeah, I guess we could kind of look at the tool bag or the work box uh, when I was touring and and, uh, and doing shows. My role was primarily a system engineer. Um, so I was deploying the PAs and tuning the PAs, running all the models. Um, and then typically as a system engineer, I also had some sort of responsibility with the rental equipment since I was working directly for the rental rental company. So whether that was making sure consoles were up and running or uh, stuff got on and off the truck correctly as as an employee of the uh, of the rental company, I had responsibility there as well. So my work box would include would include tuning mics and I carry mics. I carried the Isomcon uh, EMX uh, 7150s, so I carried a matched pair of those at minimum. 
and I would typically carry Electrosonics kit, those mics, when I was doing arena shows and stadiums. And from there, I would also carry, I carried two different distos. I carried a Lykia D810 disto, as I mentioned before, I still carry that one. And then also carried True Pulse rangefinder. Um, so that's that's an optical uh, device instead of a laser disto. And that works a lot better outside for for long throws and a lot bigger venues. Um, the sunlight does not quite interfere with it with that device the way a laser uh, rangefinder has a little more a little more challenge in the sun. That is a problem with lasers outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. So that True Pulse device is pretty expensive, but at the end of the day. I think there are some hunting or golfing range finders that um, that could be used that are fairly inexpensive if you are doing outdoor shows, but don't necessarily have the budget for a for a very expensive, extremely accurate true pulse device. I never thought about that. So are golfers using a range finder to see like how far away it is and or looking at angles of what the kind of shot they would need to take? I believe so. I think you have to look into the specs of what the disto does. Distance is only one thing that you need. You also need to have that that inclinometer built into the range finder so it can calculate height differences for you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So depending on uh, what, what may be be built into an entry-level golf disto and whatnot, it's important just to know which which feature set you need. And for for a disto and range finder, it's distance, but you need that inclinometer to be able to calculate the height of something as well. Um, Preston, what is one book that has been immensely helpful to you? Yeah, so I, I've actually read quite a few books this year, which is not in character for me. I, I guess I was not one that enjoyed school for the most part. So I always enjoyed reading manuals, but when it came to books, that's something that I've had to learn to enjoy. And I would say in the past year and a half, two years, um, I've really enjoyed reading a lot more. And frankly, I've been reading books more about, you know, my hobby uh, scuba diving than I have about pro audio recently. Okay. Uh, What's your favorite scuba diving book? Oh man, uh, scuba diving book, I guess maybe because it reads a little more like a manual. Um, there's a series of books um, called Scuba Confidential. And I guess, Nathan, what's really cool about scuba diving is it's one of the only, it's it's a hobby that I found that relates to the same passions that that I have and experience with, with live audio. It's very technical, but at the end of the day, you're also, uh, you also get to experience art and connect with emotion. You're underwater, you see things that you, you would never think to experience before. And I, but you still have to manage all of this technical gear. Um, it's the same thing in live audio. You're managing, you know, a complex network system of audio equipment. But at the end of the day, you're mixing music and you're helping people connect with, you know, uh, the artist and the musicians on stage. So it's a really cool dichotomy of, super dry technology and passion and music uh, that evokes emotion. So diving, diving checks all those boxes for me as well. Very cool. Um, Preston, do you listen to podcasts? I do. And I have to give you a heads up. My wife is actually, she's got a full-time job producing podcasts um, as well. Oh my God. No pressure, Nathan. Uh, (laughs) So, I want to know, like, what are the one or two podcasts that you have to listen to every time they come out? And and then I guess also give a plug for like what 
are the maybe what's one or two of the podcasts that your wife works on? Yeah. So, um, the ones that I absolutely have to listen to are the ones my wife is working on or she is in. Those <laughs> okay. are, those are, uh, a definite and she's, she's done a great job with those. There's actually a pretty, um, interesting podcast that, uh, that her company spoke did for, for a network security company. Um, and it's called Breach. So they just talk about, um, different hacks that have happened in the world. So they go into the, they go into the Yahoo hack that happened, uh, several years ago and really what took place behind the scenes on that. So, um, that's what was a, the Yahoo hack, uh, confident, like, uh, user information was leaked or something. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a fun podcast. They keep it lighthearted. Um, so that's a really cool one. But podcasts that I'm listening to today, 20,000 Hertz is an interesting one, um, yeah. talking about where iconic sounds came from. Um, so it's not necessarily always as tech heavy as much as it is, you know, informational and and, um, and there's some cool stories behind behind where certain sounds came from. I know they recently did a, um, a podcast on where the 808 sound came from. So sure. and what the history of, of that iconic kick drum uh, synth sound is. Um, so that's one that's that's on my list. Preston, thank you very much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Thanks, Nathan. Sound Design. This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. The music used in this episode is called Where I Was Born by an artist named Mile24. Sound Design Live is supported by Ross, Learn Stage Lighting, John Scott, Pedro Rob, Martin, Roadie Free Radio, Joel Ellis, Jim, Sinqui, Terry Nicholas, Kuba Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. It's time to go.